Well, good morning, everybody. Like uh, Kyung said, my name is Joel. I'm from Canada. I must say, I woke up this morning pleasantly surprised to the snow. <laughs> I enjoyed it. We were just home for the holidays back in Canada, uh, and we didn't have any snow. It was warmer than it was here. So I was like, you know what? It would be nice to have some snow over the holidays. I don't know if that's you this morning, but that's me. So I'm excited for it. Uh, we are going to be in Hebrews 2 this morning, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles there. I'm going to be reading later, verses 14 through 18. But why? This was a common phrase that my parents heard raising me as a child, whether I was trying to figure out uh, why the TV remote didn't work if I held my hand in front of it, or why I wasn't allowed candy past 7 p.m., I was relentlessly curious. Like many kids, the world for me was this place of curiosity, this place of wonder, this place of needing to uncover these things, these secrets. There were too many things that I didn't know. There were too many questions I was restless with, and at the expense of my parents' sanity, the two words always at the tip of my tongue were, but Why? Curiosity is the necessary catalyst, I believe, for growth. It's the reason that when you're on a first date, you ask questions, the reason that universities are still in business, and the reason that your rapidly growing four-year-old asks that relentlessly annoying question, but why? Curiosity is the thing that births industries and it moves innovation forward. Albert Einstein himself was famous for saying, I have no special talent, all I am is passionately curious. But here's the thing. Curiosity gets silenced in the familiar. As kids, everything is new. Everything is brand new. You don't know much, so you're always curious. You're always growing. You're always lost in wonder. But as we get older, and as we get more familiar with the world around us, our curiosity slowly disappears. So we'll stop asking questions. We'll stop exercising wonder, and consequentially, we will stop growing. It's in the overly familiar that our curiosity and our wonder slowly fade. And it's right around this time at Christmas, every single year, that we celebrate the familiar story of Jesus' birth. However, in the familiarity of God himself being born in a manger, I'm afraid all too often we are more concerned with the fact that he came as a baby in a manger, and not concerned as much with the fact why he came. And I can't help but think that often, even in Christianity, even for people who have gone to church their whole lives, we can know that Jesus became a human that day 2,000 years ago. We can often have the right theology around him. We can cite the ancient creeds and confessions. We can probably understand that Jesus came in a manger so that he could die for our sins on the cross. But even with this right theology, we might not know the why behind why God became man. Why did he arrive as a baby? Why couldn't he have appeared as a 30-year-old grown man? Why did he have to grow? Why did he have to become human at all? That's the question that I'm going to explore this morning, is this. Why did Jesus become human? In fact, it's this question that the author, is very, author of Hebrews is very concerned about. Hebrews is a fascinating book. The writer of it is anonymous, but it's filled with this deep, rich theological truth. And at the end of chapter two, the book takes an interesting shift. 
In the first chapter of Hebrews, the author goes to extreme lengths to describe Jesus as exalted, Jesus as mighty, Jesus as the heir of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Multiple times the author of Hebrews writes about angels, and he says, angels? You guys are still impressed by angels? You don't understand that the glory of Christ is so far beyond that of an angel. It is inconceivable. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is God. And then like an e-brake going 60 on the highway, Hebrews 2.9, the author writes this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So here's this infinitely incomprehensible being for whom and by whom all things are created. He's co-eternal with the Father. He is God himself in all his magnificent glory. Yet, he is made lower than the angels. He is made human. And why exactly? Well, that's the question that we're going to explore. So let me read Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and then we'll get into it. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. As I've alluded to already, the first two chapters of Hebrews, we get this looking glass into the greatest tension of Christology. Christology simply means the study of Christ. And this tension is, what does it mean that God, that God is both, that Jesus is both God and man? See, on the one hand, we have Hebrews 1. Jesus is God. He's upholding the universe. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Yet on the other hand, he's lower than the angels. He partakes of the same flesh and blood as his creation. He is made like us in every respect. This is the tension that Hebrews is bringing in. And over the years, many mistakes have been made by many very well-intentioned people who either overemphasize Christ's divinity at the expense of his humanity, or they overemphasize his humanity at the expense of his divinity. If you've been around the church long, you've probably heard this language that Jesus is both fully God and he is fully man. And this might be something that's obvious to us now, but the only reason that we have this language to describe Christ this way is because for the first 450 years of Christianity, countless of ours and countless people have devoted their lives to explaining Christ and his being in an orthodox and cohesive way. And when we talk about this stuff, it can be very, very difficult to explain, and there's a lot of mistakes that have been made along the way. In the fourth century, a man named Apollinarius popularized a heresy called Apollinarianism. He claimed that Jesus was mostly human, but he was not fully human. He said that Jesus had this human body and he had this human soul, but his human mind was replaced with his divine mind. 
So while you and I, we need to learn and we have these cognitive limitations, Jesus sort of walked around looking at everything kind of like God does. You know, he could see through walls. He would know the end of your sentence. He could solve every math equation. He would know everything all at once. Now, to be fair, in one sense, Apollinaris was on to something. Jesus did have his divinity while he was here. Jesus did not lose his divine capabilities when he became human, but he did gain human capabilities. He became human through addition, not subtraction. Humanity was added on to his being, but he lost nothing in the process. However, because of that, Jesus chose to function within the scope of humanity. He chose to live the full human experience. See, Apollinaris' problem was that he believed Jesus did not live the full human experience, where his divine intellect superseded his human one. He taught simply this, that Jesus was a God in a bod, where he was mostly human, but he was not completely human. Now, I mentioned Apollinarianism specifically uh, because over, out of all the early heresies kind of around this topic, this is the one that I believe we can most easily fall into. We can believe that Jesus was sort of this superhuman where he wasn't like us who needed to learn and grow and have our minds develop, but Jesus knew everything because he still kept this divine mind. To show you how popular this can be, a very common Christmas song around this time of the year, Away in a Manger, sort of depicts Jesus this way, where Jesus isn't this normal baby, but he's sort of this ultra-human baby. He's kind of up in heaven, and he's watching his little body down on earth. And I'm not saying that Away in a Manger is heretical, but I am saying that it, uh, it might raise our eyebrows if we think about it a little, a little more deep. Uh, but the song goes like this. And I know you guys didn't, hear me, didn't uh, come this morning to hear me sing, but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, Away in a manger goes like this. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, I've been around long enough to know that a baby that does not cry is not a human baby. <laughs> right? The parents are laughing at that. Uh, Right? But that's kind of what they're saying in this song. They're saying Jesus isn't a normal human baby. He's this perfect baby. No crying he makes. Jesus, he was so good. He wasn't like all these other babies. No crying did Jesus make. But the song continues. I love the Lord Jesus who looks down from the sky and stay by my cradle till morning is nigh. Jesus wasn't on earth. He wasn't in his body, but he was looking down from the sky over his body at his, in the manger. To see how easy it is to kind of do away with Jesus' full humanity. Now, to be fair, it is tempting to try to explain Jesus' perfection by finding a way around his humanity. But you can't do that because it's simply not true. It's right here in Hebrews 2, 14 and verse 17. Just like we are human, Jesus is human. He partook of the same things. And to drive his point home more, the author says that he was made like us in every respect. See, Apollinaris' problem, and sometimes I believe this is our problem, is that he believed that to be human was to be sinful. So his solution was, well, Jesus can't be completely human. Because if he was, then he wasn't actually perfect. Now, I want to pause for a second, because this is where I believe our theology gets very practical. 
your humanity is not the problem in this world. Sin is. It is not that you sin because you are a human. Have you ever heard this? We'll see something on the news and you'll hear Christians just grieve human nature. We'll see, ah, it's our, it's our human nature that's doing this. No, it's, it's not human nature that did that. If human nature was the culprit of evil, then either A, Jesus did not have a human nature, which we just read he does, or B, Jesus did have a human nature that was culpable of evil. And again, that's not true. The problem is not that you have a human nature. The problem is that you have a human nature that's fallen. And I believe we need to change our language around from this phrase, to be human is to be sinful, because it's not true. It wasn't true of Jesus. It's not gonna be true of us in glory. And when we assent to the idea that to be human is to be sinful, we get this really bad theology that kind of says, well, when grandma dies, she loses her body and she gets her angel wings. It's not true. It's not true. That's nowhere in scripture. Jesus revealed to us through his incarnation, through his putting on of human flesh, that true humanity is sinless humanity. And more than that, Jesus' full humanity shows us the beauty and the value of being a human made in the image of God. That means the things that make you, you, the things that make you human matter. Our gender, our ethnicity, our body, our mind, our flesh, our emotions, the things that make you, you matter. Jesus engaged with humanity. He clothed himself in it. He did not avoid it. He's not trying to escape it. He's not trying to rescue us from it. Jesus entered into real, true humanity. Why? Well, in verse 14, the author of Hebrews says that he partook of the same things so that. He says this is a purpose. He partook of the same things for this reason, that through death he might destroy the devil and deliver those in lifelong slavery. Verse 17 puts it this way, Jesus was made in every respect so that he might become the faithful and merciful high priest to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Don't be afraid of that word. It simply means to appease wrath. See, even though our humanity is not the problem, there is still a problem with our humanity. It is enslaved to death. It's enslaved to the devil. And we don't have to look very far to see that there is darkness in the world. And as Christians, we know that that darkness has a name, sin. Sin has touched every single corner of the globe and is holding everything in lifelong slavery. Sin has affected every part of you and it has affected every single part of me. And I know I don't need to say this, but our minds have been corrupted by sin. Our bodies have been corrupted by sin. Our emotions, our sexuality, sin has reached every part of our being to the point that every part of our being is in need of redemption. And because God is just, right, and holy, he cannot brush that all off and pretend it's no big deal. Imagine a judge in the court of law who whenever a criminal stood before him guilty and he awaited his sentence, he was dismissed without any consequence. No one looking at that judge would agree that he is good. 
Why? Because the victims, what happened to them means nothing. It means that it's no big deal. And when it comes to God, who is infinitely just and who is infinitely good, and because every part of our being has been corrupted by sin and every part of our being offends him, every part of our being stands under him guilty. See, we don't have moments of sin. It's not like we do something wrong and it's, that's the thing that we did. No, we exist in it. Every part of our being is enslaved to the devil. After the fall of Adam and Eve, after the fall of Adam and Eve, after the fall of humanity, God looks over his people and says in Genesis 8:21 that from birth, every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. To our core, every aspect of our beings corrupted with sin. But Hebrews 17 says that this is why Jesus came, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest. In the Old Testament, a high priest's job was to offer a sacrifice on behalf of Israel's, on behalf of Israel for their forgiveness. They, were a, they would appoint a representative to act on their behalf, and that representative was the high priest. Hebrews 5.1 says that every high priest is chosen from among men. That's key. And is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So what a high priest would do is he would purify himself completely. He would enter into God's temple, into his presence where the altar and the Ark of the Covenant are. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, Indiana Jones, it's the best I got. And the high priest would place the blood of a sacrifice on the altar. And what that dead animal would do is he would symbolize death on behalf of the people that the, that the priest was there in, to represent. The animal did not do anything wrong. In fact, it had to be perfect. But the people outside of the temple were sitting under the power of death, which is unforgiven sin. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin are death. So the animal's job was to pay the price of death for the people. The animal's death was a substitute for the people's death. And what Jesus did as our high priest is he acted on behalf of us in relation to God by entering his presence and offering a perfect sacrifice in our place. And I know I, know, I, know I don't need to say this, but he did not place on the altar the blood of a perfect animal. No, the sacrifice that Christ laid on, his, on the altar was his own body. Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for the people he was there to represent. Christ's death was humanity's death. Now, this is why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Because you might ask, well, why weren't the goats enough? Why weren't the animals that the priest came in with enough? Why didn't a perfect animal, if the animal was actually perfect, why didn't the perfect animal do the job? And it's because of this. Because a viable substitute needs to be of the same substance. A viable substitute needs to be the same substance. Here's what I mean. A couple months back, I was on a trip, and I came into her apartment, and my wife Shelby was in there, and greeted, how you doing? Good, trip was good, whatever. Uh, and I look, and she baked these muffins and put them on the counter. And 
I was like, okay. And she's like, have a muffin. I was like, it was just like immediately when I came in the door. She's like, have a muffin. I'm like, okay, so I had a muffin. She didn't take one. I, that should have been my first clue. So I'm eating this muffin, and she's just watching me. And I take a bite of it, and she goes, how is it? I'm like, yeah, it's good. And before I can even finish that, she goes, it's gluten-free. And immediately when she said that, I knew there's something off about this muffin. The second she said it, I was like, this is not a normal muffin. See, she tried to substitute wheat flour for almond flour or something like that. And now I'm not trying to be dramatic, but almond flour is an unviable substitute for wheat flour. Had she said, I used Pillsbury instead of Robin Hood, that would have been okay. That is the exact same thing with a different bag. But she said, I used almonds instead of wheat. That is an unviable substitute. In the same way, a goat cannot be the ultimate substitute for the sins of people because a goat is not human. This is exactly why the author of Hebrews connects the full humanity of Jesus to his role as faithful high priest because to be a viable substitute for the death of humans, there needs to be a human. During the time of Apollinarius, when the church was trying to figure out why the real, full, and true humanity of Jesus was so important, during this time when they were trying to figure out why this mattered so much, a guy named Gregory of Nyssa spoke up. And in response to Apollinarius, he said this. He said, the unassumed is the unhealed. And what he meant is, Had Jesus not assumed a part of our humanity in the incarnation, Jesus could not have healed that part of humanity in the resurrection. So if Jesus had taken on all of our humanity, if Jesus had not taken on all of our humanity in every respect, he would not have healed every aspect of our humanity. Remember, the whole of humanity fell in Adam, so the whole of humanity needs redemption. Had Jesus taken a human body and not taken a human mind, he could have healed our human bodies, but he could not have healed our mind. Had he taken a mind and not a body, he could have healed our minds, but he could not have healed our body. In other words, this is the answer to our question earlier. Why did Jesus need to be human? Because if he wasn't, then we would lose. If Jesus is not human, then there is no destruction of death and there is no destruction of the devil. If Jesus is not human, there is no freedom from slavery. If Jesus is not human, there is no propitiation for the sins of people. But Jesus did become human and he did die in our place and he did defeat death and he did take on full humanity and he lived perfectly and he died innocently. And because of this, he satisfied God's wrath on humans. Because if Romans 6 is right and the wages of sin is death, they're paid in full by the one who died without sin. The gospel, our faith, our worship, all that we do, the reason that we're gathered in this room today hinges on Jesus' full humanity. It is our only path to victory. Jesus became human because if he didn't, we'd lose. And not only would we lose in regards to sin and death, but you and I would lose every single day. Look with me at verse 16. Hebrews 2.16 says this, For it is not the angels that he helps, but the children of Abraham. 
The verb he helps is in the present active. This simply means that this is something ongoing presently right now. So this phrase, it is not the angels that he helps, but the children of Abraham, does not refer to a past event on the cross, but it refers to something that's in the continuous, something happening right now. And how does he help us each and every day? Well, that's my next point. And I believe that there's two ways. First, verses 17 and 18 points us again to his role as our high priest and his impact on our temptation. We just talked about Jesus as high priest. And as I said earlier, the high priest's job was to represent the people before God. And part of this representation was to present the people's needs to God and ask him for help. This is what would happen in the Old Testament is the priest would intercede on behalf of the people that he was there to represent. Have you heard of intercession prayer? As I said, intercession prayer, I'm sure even if you haven't done it or heard it, I'm sure you do it all the time. It's when you pray to God on behalf of someone else. So if someone else is sick and you come before God and you say, God, would you interrupt the narrative that's going on in their life? And would you bring healing to this person's body? You're acting as an intercessor on their behalf. You're bringing their needs before God on their behalf. This is exactly what Christ is doing. We see an example of what this is in Luke 22. Jesus, before he is betrayed, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you and desires to sift you away as wheat. Peter, Satan has asked for you. But Jesus goes on. But know this, that I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In this story, we see Jesus acting as an intercessor for Peter. And in the same way, Jesus, as our high priest, is an intercessor on our behalf. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 says that this isn't just happening in a moment, but because God is eternal, because Christ is eternal, this is happening constantly. Think about that. Right now, Jesus is standing before the throne, standing at his Father's side, praying for you. Now, how much more confidence would this give us in claiming victory and temptation, knowing that in our moments of weakness, Christ himself is standing at the Father's side, praying to him, would you strengthen this man's faith? Satan is after this woman. Would you empower her in her temptation right now? It's through Christ's intercession. It's through him praying and bringing your needs to his Father that he helps us as our high priest. So think about this. When you're alone or you're at the bar with friends and the temptation comes over you to have one more drink and push you into a buzz, at that moment, Christ is standing at his father's side pleading for your strength. Or when you're in your room and the temptation comes over you to go back to that site or go back onto that social media page, Christ himself is pleading with his father that you would have the strength to overcome. Or when you're at work and the gossip starts happening about the person that's not in the room, Christ is pleading with you in that moment not to engage. Jesus lives right now. He lives eternally to intercede on our behalf as the fully human high priest. If we only knew the power that was available to us through Christ. That's the first way he helps. 
The second way I believe pertains to his ability to empathize with a weary world. Verse 18 says this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. A few months back in our Luke series, we went through Jesus' temptation in the desert. And there we saw that Satan tempted Christ with every single external temptation that the world has to offer. He appealed to his weakness and he appealed to his flesh by saying, Jesus, why don't you take these stones and satisfy your hungry body? Satan seduced Christ's eyes by telling him to perform a messianic sign and jump from the temple and be accompanied by a crowd of angels. And Satan tempted Christ's pride by by offering him the keys to the kingdom without the suffering that would come. And just like for Christ, it is these three temptations that you and I constantly face. It is with these three seductions that Satan coaxes us away from God However, what the author of Hebrews says in verse 18 is that Christ is our help through these temptations because he knows exactly what it is we need help with. Jesus knows what it's like to have his flesh appealed to. He knows what it's like to have desire placed in front of his eyes in a moment of weakness. He knows what it's like to stand face to face with pride. He knows what it's like to live in a world competing for your affections. And he knows what it's like to suffer in these ways. And because of that, he knows what it takes to overcome. This means that when you and I pray to God for strength amid the world's temptations, he can help because he's been there. Do you know how incredible it is to pray to a God who knows what you're going through? Jesus never has to guess your experience. He never has to guess what it is that you're going through because through his humanity, he has lived it. And not only did he live it, but he overcame it. Hebrews 4.15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. How amazing is that? But one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, though he was tempted in every way that you and I are, endured without ever giving in. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could. You and I, we do fail and we will fail often the world's temptations will inevitably get the better of us. But when we put our faith in Christ, his help comes to us in that God counts his obedience as our obedience. When we trust in the Lord for salvation, he helps us by attributing Christ's victory as our victory. Jesus entered a suffering world that was unable to help itself He came to a people utterly susceptible to the allure of a seductive world. He put on humanity in its fullness, in its weakness. He engaged with its suffering. He confronted its challenges. And more than that, through his perfect human obedience, he overcame on our behalf, taking on our failures and giving us his glory. It's Christ's humanity that helps us. It's Christ's humanity that we're able to win. Now you may have come in here and not known why Christ's humanity matters. You might have had the proper theology around what the incarnation is, but you might not have known why it's so essential and why it's so imperative to the things that we do. But my prayer is that you'll leave here with the confidence knowing that it's only because of Christ's humanity. It's only because of his willingness to empty 
empty himself and enter into our flesh that we have victory. It's because of his humanity that not only is our victory achieved when he died on the cross, but it is a present victory in our struggles each and every day. I pray that you'll leave here knowing that Christ had to assume flesh. He had to take on humanity because if he didn't, we would lose. And as I close, I want to just encourage you to embrace a posture of curiosity, especially around the familiarity of Christ's birth and the traditions of the holidays. We can lose our sense of wonder. Far too easily, we can slide into the familiar, into the comfortable, into the known. And while there's so much beauty that exists in that space, there's so much depth that we risk missing. So I challenge you, take some time and reflect this past year. What's one question that I had that I might have just said, you know what, I'll leave that to the theologians or I'll leave that to the pastors or, or maybe that one doesn't actually matter. What's one question that you've been restless with, that you've been thinking about, that you've been walking through? We just went through why his humanity is so important. Maybe you're wondering why, why did his divinity matter? Whatever it is, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to explore God in his depth and in his beauty, to ask the difficult questions. God's never been afraid of a question. Curiosity is what grows us, it shapes us, it deepens our relationships. The more we learn about an infinite God, the more there is we have to love about him. So as the calendar turns tonight and as we step into a new year, may you have the courage to be curious. Would you step into 2024 expecting more to learn about God? Would you start the new year with a posture of humility and wonder? Never ceasing to ask that perpetual question, but why? Lord, I thank you so much for this season and just the reminder and the holidays and the traditions that uh, just point us back to you and just remind us that uh, not only did you come, Lord, but the reason that you came. Lord, I thank you so much that you embrace humility in its fullness and its perfection and that in doing so, you assumed human flesh, you assumed your creation so that you might redeem it, Lord. God, so I pray that not only would we rest in the fact that you have accomplished our salvation on the cross, but I pray that we'll just be emboldened by the fact that you have given us victory each and every day, Lord. God, would we cast our minds to you? Would we recognize that you're praying, that you're interceding, Lord? That your humanity and your humility is the reason that we have victory, God. So God, give us a posture of curiosity as we go into this new year. Would we learn more about you? Would we love you? Would we um, just experience you deeper and fuller? Lord, would this be a year of transformation for us spiritually? God, so thank you so much. I pray that you'll be with this congregation. I pray this in your name. Amen.